0: My name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time the UN's climate change conference in Glasgow, COP26. Will it be a cop-out? We can expect Boris Johnson and other world leaders to strut their stuff on the international stage and demonstrate what they're doing to fight climate change, which scientists say will have catastrophic consequences unless we take radical action now. The UK government has set out its stall by announcing a net zero strategy, which includes a ban on the sale of cars and vans that run on petrol and diesel by 2030, and they'll provide subsidies to replace 30,000 and gas boilers a year with heat pumps. What the strategy doesn't do is provide any significant help for insulation, an area where Britain, if you'll pardon the pun, lags behind many other developed countries. And there's no restriction on the root cause of climate change, oil and gas production. So how did we get to this place? And what action do we need to really grapple with what is an existential crisis for millions of people around the world as they face the prospect of floods, droughts, rising sea levels and increasingly unpredictable weather patterns? I've brought together two radical thinkers. Silvia Pastorelli, a climate and energy campaigner at Greenpeace's European unit in Brussels, which is coordinating an EU-wide petition to ban all fossil fuel advertising and sponsorship. That would mean virtually no ads for cars or airlines. And Adam Ramsey, editor of the UK-based Open Democracy website, who has written extensively about climate change. He says the UK has a special responsibility because we triggered the era of fossil fuel burning with the Industrial Revolution.
1: I think the thing to remember with climate change is that carbon remains in the atmosphere for, on average, 100 years and sometimes more than that. So, to understand the kind of action we need to take now, you have to understand the history. What's happened now, what's happened before, in order to have any kind of fair allocation of who gets the tiny amount of carbon that we can emit going forward in order to avoid 1.5 degree temperature increases. And if you're sat in Britain, as I am, I I live in Scotland, I live in Edinburgh, and, you know, I'm surrounded by this constant reminder of the fact that, as I say, you know, the UK, arguably Scotland, is um, more responsible than almost anyone else because the UK's empire and industrial revolution were driven through the invention of new technologies initially by James Watts, who also was from Scotland, driven by coal power. And I'm surrounded by the old coal mines, which used to drive that. So if you look at the stats and absolutely, you know, the UK per capita is responsible for more carbon emissions since 1850 than people in any other country in the world, bar just about the USA and Luxembourg, interestingly, but also It's a much broader story than that, because the UK, you know, we were, in my dad's lifetime, the world's biggest empire. And so we invented and exported, with violence, the form of industrial capitalism, which has led to surging rates of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, to mass deforestation of much of the world. And, you know, you can't understand any of that process without understanding the role of the British Empire initially in driving it. And also to this day in protecting it. British banks still play an outsized role in financing fossil fuel infrastructure in the world. Britain's overseas territories are, you know, the main place which the oligarchs, the world, hide their cash. And where do those oligarchs make their money? From coal and oil and gas normally. And so, you know, Britain likes to think of itself as this sort of progressive greening nation because our domestic carbon emissions, the emissions from our own landmass are kind of falling. But Really, we understand our role in the world. That's not what it's about. It's a much wider and longer story. And it's a story which shows very much that we played, you know, Britain invented the modern world significantly. Um, It's often said Scotland invented the modern world, which is also to some
0: extent true. And that modern world is on fire. And we have to understand that's kind of our fault. You've spoken to a young man in Zambia whose family have been forced to... Flee because of the impact of climate change, they've been forced to move. He is now a climate scientist or a, a researcher working in the, the field of agriculture, seeking to ameliorate the worst effects of climate change. And in that article, you make the point that many of the former countries of empire, although they were and are rich in minerals, the way those areas were set up by Britain, by the British Empire, The whole point was to extract value from that land, not to ensure that the profits from those minerals stayed within those lands. They came here.
1: Yeah, it's been really interesting going through carbon emissions of different countries. I've been writing and I'm still writing a series of kind of country profiles in the run up to the Glasgow climate conference. And Zambia, which I looked at at the end of last week, is a fascinating example because Zambia's emissions have collapsed since the 1970s because the Zambian economy has collapsed. It's kind of easy to imagine that poorer countries, you know, African countries in particular, that's kind of a permanent situation. But African countries in the 1960s and 70s often had about the same GDP at the time as, say, Japan did. The difference is that they were colonies of Britain or France, usually, sometimes um, other European countries, and the way that their economies were set up, as you said, were designed for the extraction of wealth. And then often when the material resources they were built on, so in the case of Zambia, that was largely copper, you know, because there was a glut in the world market to some extent of a lot of those things in the 70s, and because oil prices soared, because those countries whose wealth came from oil organized themselves into OPEC after they got their independence from empire and pushed up the price of oil, those economies collapsed and then were forced into kind of neoliberal programs to pay off debts that they'd accrued as a result and have been getting poorer ever since until basically the jubilee debt campaign in in the early noughties managed to get that debt cancelled and so what the carbon emissions tell a story of is a story of impoverishment and extraction of wealth from the global south by the global north and as you come into the glasgow climate conference where one of the big discussions is going to be about climate finance the question is you know how how could you know we understand in in the West, in places like Britain, that we need a kind of Green New Deal, particularly coming out of the pandemic, to invest in infrastructure, we need to transition to a zero carbon economy. But you look at a country like Zambia, they don't have the money to do that. We can do that in Britain. They don't because we took it from them. And so I think we do have a very strong moral responsibility to invest not just in domestic Green New Deals, but in a global Green New Deal, which understands that imperial context, the context that, you know, all the... one I live in Edinburgh, a beautiful city built on the wealth of empire and slavery. And we can't possibly have that transition to a 0 carbon economy globally without acknowledging that the wealth we have comes as a result of the fact that they're poor and without investing globally in that transition together.
2: I'm very happy that you're talking about the, the climate conference and Glasgow and also on the issue of responsibility. There's a lot of things that that we can say here. And maybe starting with the with issue of responsibility, you said that you know that we are responsible for it. And I would like to maybe touch upon a little bit about who is this we and who is responsible for it, especially when we're talking about emissions. And we know that actually the it's, it's really it's a handful of companies that are primarily responsible for the major part of emissions at the moment. And this is also what we are addressing with our initiative to ban all uh, advertisement and sponsorship from fossil fuel companies. It really is a matter of Responsibility as well. With this initiative, we're basically looking at the products and the activities that these companies are are selling that we know are harmful. And we've known that for a very long time now, decades, and still we have their activities, their, their brands being promoted at every corner. And this is still considered a perfectly acceptable thing. And this has to change. The rationale is exactly the same that was used around the tobacco advertisement years ago. Uh, You have a product, you know, this product is harmful. Why should we promote this product?
0: That's a really interesting point. I was going to ask about that parallel with cigarette or tobacco advertising, which is now banned in the UK and in other European countries as well. Are you suggesting then that there would be no advertising of any fuel company that has fossil fuel as its base so no oil company advertising that there would be no sponsorship for example of formula one which is very often tagged with the the names of these petrol companies these oil companies
2: or sponsorship of the COP, since we're talking about this, which is even more scandalous. We're talking about global negotiations on climate that, as seen very often, involvement in one way or another as a sponsor or not of um, fossil fuel companies. We're seeing it this year with COP26 with uh, a lot of prominent uh, gas names, for instance. And uh, yeah, that w- that is exactly what the ban would cover. It wouldn't just cover, you know, the fossil fuel product. You think of advertisements from these companies right now. Do you ever see a barrel of oil? Do you see a fossil gas pipeline featuring prominently on their advertisements? No. What they show you is windmills, solar panels, or their climate pledges. They tell you, we were really working hard to get to net zero by 2050. But the reality is very, very different. And these advertisements are, are misleading, essentially, because they're not representing in an accurate way, the core business of of these companies. Their core business still lies elsewhere. They're still applying for, for, for permits to drill in the Arctic. They're still asking for public money subsidies to build more gas infrastructure. And that's not what they're telling people. That's not what they're showing people.
0: Would you also ban car advertisements, unless they're electric cars anyway, because traditional cars using the internal combustion engine do burn oil?
2: Actually, our European Citizen initiative proposing this ban would also cover transport, with the exception of public transport, because, of course, we believe that public transport is part of the solution. We want to encourage people as much as possible to change to a different mode of transport. But the ban would actually, yes, also cover fossil fuel powered vehicles, to put it in in a broader way. So it wouldn't just cover cars. It would also cover the commercials, you know, advertisement from airlines telling you that you can go and spend your weekend on you know on another european capital that you could also easily access access by train but by spending 15 euros you are able to hop on a plane and reach another city uh, which is we know it's a a harmful activity and it's part of what is contributing to to climate change
0: yeah i mean you're taking on a massive lobby there aren't you not only The oil lobby, the gas lobby, you're taking on the the motor manufacturers, the airline industry, and there will be people working in those industries who might well be sympathetic to your broader point, but who'll be saying when they hear that, that's my job at risk.
2: I mean, we're also talking to people who work in the creative industry. And there's a lot of people who work in the creative advertisement industry who would also like to be part of the change. But also people who work in this industry, they know that they, you know, that the, the transition is coming and it's just coming at, at a faster pace. But at this stage, we want to have a conversation where all these things that seem very radical right now, which probably was the same case for tobacco when that happened. We want to move it from making it sound radical to making it sound inevitable.
0: And just so I'm clear, would your ban also include a ban on electric cars as well?
2: In a consistent way, same way that uh, a fossil fuel companies could not advertise their one percent investment in renewables, unless a car company has an entirely like electric fleet, that will be the same. Very often, we have seen it: at car companies, car manufacturers who might have, you know, maybe one car that is like completely electrical vehicle. They still use that to advertise their products, but essentially, you know, their business is for the biggest part somewhere else. Same as. Uh, same as for fossil fuel companies.
0: And Adam, you've written about how what are presented as improvements in environmental performance, new technologies, which is very often the mantra of governments who like tech solutions, that very often these solutions prove to be an illusion when it comes to decarbonizing the economy.
1: I find this really fascinating because it's a very simple bit of kind of traditional economics that explains why this is. And yet it's often the kind of most passionate advocates of free market economics, which appear not to understand it. So you you can go back to the 1860s to look at the first studies of this. It's a thing called Genvin's paradox, that if you invent more efficient machines, they will end up using more fuel rather than less because people put more fuel into them. So when you know as i said before james watt invented the improvements to the steam engine that didn't mean that less coal was consumed in britain it meant more coal was consumed in britain in my piece i i did some sums and we looked at the increase in fuel efficiency of aircraft since the 1960s which is about eightfold the product of that hasn't been less fuels used in aircraft it's mean that the price of the ticket's fallen, and the number of flights has gone up 14-fold, and therefore more fuel has been used. And that's a pretty consistent rule of energy economics and that has been explained by energy economists for, you know, as I say, you know, almost 200 years. Yet these advocates of free markets saying, well, the problem, what we need is more efficient technologies. And, and you know, the, the bottom line is that doesn't work in a free market capitalist system. What you need is to stop mining fossil fuels, from the ground and stop burning them. In a sense, it comes back to a lot of what Sylvia is talking about, that it should be socially unacceptable to mine fossil fuels, carbon, from the ground and push into the atmosphere. We all know what the social consequences of that are going to be, and already are being across society. And we need to get to a position where that isn't a kind of socially acceptable thing to do. But fossil fuel companies pour a huge amount of money into buying what people call a social license to operate so into making it morally okay and kind of making it you know may, maybe we maybe we're being a bit harsh on them you know kind of buying these narratives from our society through advertising to sponsorship of the arts and so on and absolutely you know sylvia's right that we need to ban that you can't kind of you know create sort of technological solutions and market efficiencies because the market will always maximize the consumption it has you know a classic example of this is german technology you know so germany has seen an enormous expansion of renewable energy over the last 20 years but that doesn't mean it's used any less coal it just means it uses more electricity it's like you know if you go on a diet by having a salad as well as your burger rather than by stopping eating the burger you know, you know, Germany still consumes almost as much coal as it did twenty years ago. It's just got you know much, much more energy consumption, which has been filled up um, with wind and solar, which of course is better than more coal. But what we need to do is stop burning coal, not just build wind power stations with wind, wind turbines on top. So, um, so yeah, absolutely. You know, you can't. You know, I'm, I'm not against technology. I'm a big fan of new kinds of technology. But in a capitalist, in an open free market system, you'll always just get the new as well as the old, rather than stopping doing the old. And to solve climate change, we need to stop doing the old, which means banning fossil fuel extraction. And what that means is that these companies that Sylvia is talking about are already bankrupt because fossil fuel companies have borrowed huge amounts against their reserves of you know the, the oil fields they've not tapped yet, the coal fields they've not mined yet. And once you say, well, those you, know, you, you can never do that, then they can't pay off those debts. So they are insolvent. And absolutely, you know, of course, she's right. Shell and BP and so on should not be operational. These companies exist to extract carbon from the ground and put it into the air in a way that civilization cannot live for, and so they need to stop existing.
2: I'm very happy also that you, you know you're talking about technology, etc. Like just to make perfectly clear, we're also not against technology, and also this has nothing to do with people not being able to do the things that they want and like. This span also will cover you know, sponsorship of events like uh, or of cultural institutions like museums, etc. But as you're saying, these are all ways that these companies have to buy their, their social license, their acceptability. Um, sponsoring big climate negotiations is a way for them to portray themselves as part of, of the solution, while at the same time, very smartly, moving the responsibility from the own shoulders to the consumers very often they it's these companies is exactly these companies that bring the conversation back to what are you doing you know for the environment are you switching the lights off are you recycling are you eating seasonably you know all these things which of course like don't get me wrong are all important things all individual acts uh, you know are, are very very important and they add up but at the same time when you compare all these things with the footprint with the responsibility of these companies, all these actions pale and responsibility primarily lies somewhere else. And this is also like, it, it's exactly also through this advertisement, through the sponsorship that they they use them very often to, again point the finger somewhere else rather at their lack of change and inaction and they use it to slow real climate action and this has been the case for a very very long time especially when it comes to such important sponsorships.
0: The reason I wanted to speak to you both is that within the current context the actions that you're proposing feel very radical revolutionary even Adam, I'll put to you the question I put to Sylvia a little earlier. What do you say to the car worker, to the person working in the aviation industry, who, if you had your way, would pretty much be out of work overnight? What I'd say is, you know, of course,
1: it's absolutely vital that we have good jobs and that the new world we're going to have to build is going to take a lot of work. And we need to invest a huge amount in doing that work transition to a zero-carbon economy. And all of those people have skills and talents which are absolutely going to be needed in building that new economy. But if we don't build that new economy, then all of us are going to suffer the consequences. And so, you know, this isn't about pushing people out of work and stopping doing things. Quite the opposite. There is an astonishing amount of labour that needs to be done. But I'd also like to say that we need what's called a just transition. You know, we can't do... What happened with the coal mines in the UK in the 1980s, where people were just thrown out of jobs. I live in Edinburgh, and so I see oil rigs on the beach near where I live regularly. And my next door neighbour was an oil worker until very recently. And he shouted over the garden fence to me the other day. He was very excited. He said, I said, how are you? And he said, I'm so happy I've gotten into renewables. The kids I was at primary school with, huge numbers have ended up in the oil industry in the northeast of Scotland. I grew up north of here. And most of them understand that this isn't the future and that their children aren't going to be working in the old industry. And what they want is proper government support to transition to a new kind of economy. And they understand the need for that. People who make those complaints tend not to be the workers. What they want is good jobs in, in sustainable industries. It tends to be their bosses who are desperate to preserve the industries. I would also just add, add another thing on the previous comment, because I would go a little bit further than Sylvia on the question of individual action. You know, of course, it's good that we model ways you can live as communities without consuming carbon. But the brutal reality of the economics I described earlier, Jamvin's paradox, is that if you consume less energy, the most likely consequence is that someone else will consume more. The price of energy will fall, and someone else will buy slightly more. And we've seen this in a really vivid way in the global economy over the last couple of years where the number of electric cars globally has soared.
0: And the consequence of that has been that the number of SUVs has also soared. The important link in that chain is that because as people have transitioned to electric cars, there is less demand for oil, less demand yeah. for petrol for cars. Therefore, the petrol price drops. That makes driving gas-guzzling cars perversely yeah. more attractive. Yes, yeah, so are the kind of person who... Would always have liked
1: a four by four but couldn't afford one because they're so expensive to run. Suddenly the price of oil falls slightly and so you buy one. And so and so the net effect of all these new electric cars on the climate has been nothing. Without serious government intervention, it doesn't you know that you can do it if you like you know, I'm not against people doing things that because they don't want complicity in a morally bad thing. But let's not pretend that it's a serious strategy for reducing carbon emissions.
2: That's exactly why the ban would not cover public transport, because it's really about changing the system in multiple ways, like the the system that we live in, if we were just advocating for a one-to-one swap between, you know, Diesel cars and electric vehicles, you would look outside your window and what you'd see is exactly the same picture. Your city would look exactly the same. So that's not what we want. And here you, as you're talking about the future and future jobs, et cetera, this is what people want because this is where you know people have understood that that's where the future is, that's where it's going. But also we have to, I think we have to do our best to move away from this vision that yes, you know, the future, the transition will require a lot of work, as you said, but this future is desirable. It's it's a desirable future for everyone at fossil fuel companies, car manufacturers, they've all, you know, been very good at portraying exactly through the advertisements, a certain lifestyle, you know, there are certain reasons why you want to have the car, why you want to do certain things. But the future that we are looking at from our point of view, I mean, once we will transition to a different energy system, to a different economic model, et cetera, this is a good future. That's a good future that is desirable with good jobs, that is healthier, that is greener. There's a lot of things there and we want to maybe move away from this outdated idea that the energy transition will lead to some undesirable, inconvenient, uncomfortable way of life.
0: Yeah, we'll still have a planet as well that's habitable, which is quite a positive thing.
2: Not a small thing. (laughs) I wouldn't discount that.
0: Adam, I just want to go a bit deeper into one of the huge structural issues in this debate that you've touched on. You talked about the oil companies effectively having put their futures in hock because they're gambling that their oil and gas explorations that they've invested in will pay significant dividends further down the line. That's how capitalism works. That's how the oil and gas industry has traditionally worked. The banks are also complicit in this because the banks have lent money off the back of this. And if those investments don't pay off for the oil and gas companies. They also won't pay off for the banks. So I'm just drawing attention to that because I just want to point out the scale of the radicalism, the scale of the revolution that you're proposing. Yes,
1: you're absolutely right. You know, that the UK is one of the world's three major banking nations. So I'm sat in the UK. It's important we recognise the extent to which we're talking about Britain, the British economy, along with China and the US um have invested a huge amount, they've lent a huge amount of money to fossil fuel companies against the future reserves they want to tap into and burn of oil and coal, and which can't be burnt. And so they are loaded up. You know, they say, you know, 1000 pounds in debt it's my problem, a million pounds in debt, it's the bank's problem. Billions and billions of pounds of debt that the banks have lent out against these assets which can't be realized. So absolutely, if the oil companies are bankrupt because we can't take action on climate change, then the banks are also to a significant extent likely to be bankrupt. I mean, banks in the UK now, as of this year, are required to do a kind of climate change risk assessment where they have to consider that to some extent, you know, the extent to which the assets that they've lent against but the way that works is not that they it's not the government says you know the bank of england does the regulation says that you can't lend against that it just says if you do lend again that against that you need to consider the fact that a huge amount of civilization will be wiped out and therefore some of your assets will be destroyed by that climate change that results from that so there's no moral calculation there's no sense of you know the fact that um blutus or in zambia and his family are having their whole
0: livelihoods destroyed. Yeah. He was um, the guy who I referenced earlier on in the conversation. Yeah. You interviewed for a, an article. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and so all they have to weigh up if they continue to lend money to build new coal power stations or, you know, to mine new oil fields is how many of their own assets will the climate change resulting from that destroy? Of course you're, you're exactly right. That what I'm suggesting is, you know, requires, and, and what, what action climate change means requires is a very radical change to the economic system of the UK and Europe and America, and that we need to get serious about what that means. Um, I also think, though, that actually, if you go around Europe, as I spend a lot of my time doing pre-pandemic, talking to people about politics, there's a very strong sense that that's what people want—not just because of climate change, but because you know, since the financial crisis in 2008, people have had a very strong understanding that the economic system on which our kind of Western livelihoods are currently built is sort of absurd. And what's happened since 2008 is that you know governments have pumped a huge amount of money into a huge amount of cash into the world, inflating asset prices enormously. So particularly house prices have gone up. As people who own houses right across, you know, Europe in particular feel a lot richer, but not in any serious way become richer. You know, that's all an illusion, and that bubble will burst again. And people kind of understand that. You know, people understand that, you know, it might feel like they're kind of printing out free cash now if they own a house because the house is becoming more expensive. But that's sort of all an illusion. And so, you know, the economic system that we all rely on is absolutely broken anyway, and people kind of know that. And so I do think that... There's a very strong sense, particularly across Europe and America right now, not just because of climate change, although also because of climate change, that we need a pretty fundamental rethink of the way we organise our society. And I think people are up for that conversation, but governments and politicians, often because they're lobbied by, you know, this fossil fuel companies and, and other sort of forces of the status quo, aren't up for that honest conversation about that and are doing everything they can to resist
2: it. I think that this is true. I think that people understand these things and they have like they never as much as today, they have a greater understanding of of these things. And uh, I would also maybe want to challenge the idea that this ban or the what this ban would cover or demand is, is radical. I don't think it is uh, for different reasons. One of them being that a lot of people are already thinking about this in different places across Europe. There are already initiatives already in place, not just at the stage of being discussed. There is a couple of cities that already have such a ban in place. The city of Amsterdam, more recently, the the Hague. The French climate law has some also like first steps towards this direction of of a ban of this kind. So people are thinking about these things and people are demanding these things already. And what we want to do uh, with this initiative is also offer a way to to empower citizens who are already maybe thinking about this, but are also wondering, how do I do this? How do I bring this to the attention of the people who can make legislation on this? So this is why we're using the tool of the European Citizen Initiative, which is unfortunately accessible to citizens only. It's a great way that European citizens have to have their voice heard. What we're doing here is we're trying to collect a million signatures. People can do that through a website that's called BanFossilFuelAds.org, And... By adding the signatory to this, uh, once we reach the million, the European Commission is obliged to respond to our demands. They cannot ignore it and they have to justify also whatever they're going to tell us based on on our demands. So I think that people know that the instruments are also there and hopefully this will be an opportunity to crystallise these demands. Of course,
0: we're no longer in the EU, so it's impossible for UK citizens to do that. One final brief thought from both of you, then, ahead of COP26. At the other end of COP26, what do you hope will have happened?
2: That's not an easy question to answer in, in a one brief thought. What we need is real climate action. The reason why some of these things appear so radical and, uh, you know, the uh, emission cuts are also so steep is because we have spent decades compromising, you know, just finding what we thought was the easiest pathway. The reality is, is that if we had started with real climate action when we first had knowledge of what was ahead of us, these changes will not appear so radical today. The more we wait, the more radical they will appear. It's not going to get any better. So we need real climate action. Ignore all the false solutions, leave them off the table. Make the real polluters responsible.
1: So the current figures, as I understand them, show that if we continue across the world to emit at the rate we do at the moment, then we have eight years before we will hit the point when 1.5 degrees of global warming are inevitable, probably. And so, yeah as Sylvia says, what we need is radical reductions in carbon emissions. And I think that, you know, it's important to understand when following the conference that, of course, most politicians will try and say the things that sound like the right thing. And of course, they're going to talk about how this is a global emergency and lots of, you know, awful things that might happen and how much their country is doing. But the reality is, you know, if they don't set very tight targets Particularly countries with most responsibility, and have serious plans to meet those targets. Both the UK and US are good at talking about their targets, but have nothing like the kinds of plans in place to actually meet them. But unless they do both of those things, there's no way we're going to, you know, be able to hit
0: that timeline. So
1: what we need is rapid action.
0: Adam Ramsey, and before that, Sylvia Pastorelli. My name's Adrian Goldberg. This has been the Byline Times podcast, which is funded by subscriptions to the monthly Byline Times newspaper, which costs just £39 a year. It's a great read, I promise you. And your subscription helps support Byline TV and our brilliant news-breaking website as well. Get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. If you want to comment on this story or suggest another one, do get in touch. You can email goldbergradio at gmail.com or join the conversation at Byline Times Pod on Twitter. This has been the Byline Times Podcast. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.